Uh, we are studying the entire book of Revelation, but we're starting with the seven letters to the seven churches. And every week that we add another letter, I, I want to review the previous letters. I want us to get the flow of things, because they, they do go together, and they build on one another. So let's look at our notes. Let's, let's review the first four, and this is super fast review here. I'm trying to condense it down to as much as possible, just to remind you of the things we talked about. So number one, Ephesus did a lot of great things. They did a lot of great things. They had a great resume as a church, but in the process forgot their first love. And remember, the, the idea of forgetting their first love was they, they forgot why they were doing it. They forgot who they were doing it for. They forgot the, the greater purpose, and it just became about accomplishments, and they started looking at themselves, and, and God called them on that. And, and that's something that, that we and every other church that exists has to watch out for. Uh, we, gotta, we have to make sure we don't get to the point where we're just doing something because it's always been done, or doing something because it's expected, or doing it so that we look good or we get a pat on the back. We need to remember that we're here because of Jesus Christ. We're here for Jesus Christ, to serve Jesus Christ. And part of serving Jesus is serving each other and also serving those outside the church. So we need to remember our first love. Number two, Smyrna suffered a great deal for their steadfast love and service of Christ Jesus. It, it just says, I know you're suffering. I, I know you've gone through a lot. I know you've lost physical things and opportunities. But their instruction was to look to their eternal reward for encouragement and strength. And that was kind of interesting. That may not fit with our American way of, of, of looking at things because everything is so instant. And if not today, it's tomorrow, and, and there's always another chance, and, and all things like that. And this is, this is a really dire situation. This church was really suffering, and God's instruction was, hey, as much as you're suffering now, look to eternity. That's where the hope comes from. That's where the encouragement comes from. Look to eternity. This is short term. Eternity is obviously eternal, and that's where we'll be together. So that's the, that's the encouragement. Don't focus on today, focus on eternity. Now in Pergamum, uh, they were commended for standing strong in Satan's kingdom, where Satan lives was the terminology. And there were so many pagan temples and so much false religion that it was as if Satan had set up his own headquarters in this town, and every one of these temples was a branch office. And, and that's where they lived, and they were a small group of believers among this pagan culture. So it says they were commended. It says, but some of them were severely warned. So even though the, the group was commended, some of them were severely warned to stop compromising. What were they compromising? The Christian faith and practices. They weren't holding to the teachings of Scripture. They were playing, playing pretty loose with them and incorporating some, some practices and teachings of the pagans around them, the pagan temples and their worship. So he severely warned them to stop compromising, or Jesus himself would come personally to fight against the compromisers. That's a pretty severe warning. And Jesus is speaking, and he says, I'm going to come fight with you. And he says, repent, you still have time. And number four, Thyatira. Thyatira is kind of a mixture, uh, a mixed bag of what we've already seen. They have a lot of positive qualities, similar to Ephesus, 
including love. Love is mentioned in their list of, of their deeds. And, and they're committed for this. And so they were doing the right things, and they were doing them for the right reason. So they had that positive. But like Pergamum, they had also compromised their Christian faith and practice by following a false teacher. So in Pergamum, they followed the false teachings of Balaam. In Thyatira, they followed the false teachings of Jezebel. Both teachings were pretty much the same. Don't get too excited about doing everything God's way. Everyone else seems to be having a good time, and it seems to be working out for them. So go ahead and practice their religion, too, and it'll, it'll all work out in the end. That was the compromise. And that was very cultural. I don't know if I mentioned this before. It was a very cultural practice. When, when you moved into an area, you, you brought your God with you, and, and you just joined your God in with their gods. That's why they had so many temples in, in one place, because there's a, a, several groups that had gathered there. They all brought their gods. And, and when they worshipped other gods, it would be like saying, hey, your god seems to do pretty well for you, so I'm going to worship your god too. So I'm going to add your god to my god, and pretty soon i got five or six gods, and things are working out, so I must be doing it right. And then they see the Christians, and the Christians are being blessed, and they're benefiting, and there's some good things happening, so they just bring Christ in along with their other gods. That was a lot of the compromise, where Jesus actually said, no, I'm, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So you need to leave all the other gods behind and simply follow me. And that was part of the compromise they were having a hard time with. Now in Pergamum, he said, repent or else. In Thyatira, he said, he said the time is over, this time the time to repent has passed. Severe judgment is already coming. He says, you, you guys have been at this too long. You're, you're too far into it. You're, you're not going to leave it, so I'm coming to deal with it. You didn't deal with it, so I'm going to. So the difference between Pergamum and Thyatira here is that Pergamum still had time. Thyatira had expired their opportunity. So that brings us to Sardis. And Sardis is in Revelation chapter 3. It's verse 1 through 6. And I want to read that, so I'll go ahead and find that. I'll start reading in verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who hold the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now, like every other letter we read, this is simply Jesus saying, This isn't John, this is me. I'm writing the letter. So when they read this, they know that that phrase means Jesus, the Son of God, and so they, they hear, to the angel of the church of Sardis, write, this is Jesus. It continues on, I know your deeds. Now every other time we heard the phrase, I know your deeds, that was positive. It was, it, then it was usually a, a list of deeds, and then it was followed by something they needed to work on. But here, it's not positive. It says, I know your deeds. What are they? You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. This is spiritually alive. You have a reputation of being spiritually alive. Everyone thinks you're doing great. Everyone from the outside, everyone looking in, they think you're doing well, but I'm here to tell you you're dead. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Verse 2, wake up. Wake up. Pay attention. Take notice. Hear what I'm saying. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of God. So who is verse 2 talking to? 
It's talking to everyone when it says wake up. But then it's talking to the believers who do live there. So this church has an issue of they look alive, but they're dead. And, and we'll talk about that by a little preview. There's a lot of people here who think they're saved or people think they're saved, but they're not. So there's a, a church full of unsaved people. And he says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Well, there's believers there who are struggling, believers there who their church is going to be gone if, if they don't do something. This is, for I found your deeds unfinished. So what's happened here is the church was started with true believers. They went out and shared Christ with others, brought them into the church, but never actually shared the gospel in a way that they could respond to. And so these people would come in and they would embrace what's happening. Hey, this is good. I want to be a part of it. Let me add this to my religious routine. Let me... Let me work with you. Let me, I'll meet with you. And the majority of the church, that's as far as they got in their faith. They were religious, and they were participants, but not necessarily believers. So the unfinished deed was finishing the gospel. Like Jesus Christ is, is the Lord and Savior. Yeah, that's great. He's the Son of God. That's great. He died for our sins. That's great. Awesome, let's go. They didn't finish with, and you need to renounce all the other gods, and you need to repent of your sin, and you need to ask Christ to forgive you and accept the gift of salvation. Head knowledge isn't enough. It requires a relationship. They didn't finish that. And he's saying, you better get with it. You better get moving. So verse 3, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Remember, you heard the gospel. Hold it fast. And repent. You need to change your ways. You need to do it right. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Kind of a, a veiled threat this time. You know, a thief comes to steal. A thief comes to take away what you think is yours, what you think is secure, and it's of value, and a thief is going to come, and he's not going to announce it. He's not going to send a telegram and say, hey, I'm coming on Thursday to steal your stuff. He's not going to text you while he's in the driveway. Hey, just to be aware, if you hear some noise downstairs, it's me. I'm stealing your stuff. He sneaks, and he comes unexpected, and he takes what's important to you. He says, I'm going to come like that. I'm going to come like a thief. In other words, there's going to be a time when you've waited too long, and, and you're going to run out of opportunities. Verse 4 says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. These are the believers. They, they, they are doing what they're supposed to be doing, but it says a few people. So in the whole church, there's a few. And it says, They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. So this is a statement to encourage those who are true believers, who are, who are doing what they're supposed to do, and they're truly serving God. And he's saying, hey, you're going you're gonna to get to the end. It's, again, that look forward. Look to, the, look to the future. You're going to be with me dressed in white. You're going to be dressed in white. I'm going to be dressed in white. You're going to walk with me. We're going to have a relationship on the other side. And he says, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. He said, even if you're in a church where most people aren't believing, and you are, have no fear. True believers cannot lose their salvation. I will never blot your name. But I will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. 
And says, whoever adds ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's like, if, you, if you're willing to listen, pay attention. Because there's, there's stuff here you need to know. So the church in Sardis reads this after reading everything else. So they read about uh, Thyatira, and he says, repent, or I'm coming, I'm coming to solve the problem. You solve the problem, or I'm going to solve the problem. And then they read in Sardis, I mean, yeah, in Sardis, excuse me, getting my places mixed up. Pergamum, solve your problem, or I'm coming. In Thyatira, you didn't solve your problem, I'm on my way. And now in Sardis, it says, you're not going to know when I'm coming, but I'm coming. So it's a different kind of warning, it's kind of veiled. And he's speaking to a different group of people. Before, they were talking to believers that were being led astray. And maybe a couple of people that were intentionally leading them astray, but the main group was believers. Here, the main group is not believers. The smaller group is the believers. And he's saying to the smaller group, stand firm. I'm not going to forget about you. My promises are true. And he's saying to the larger group, you better wake up. Because if you don't, all of a sudden it's going to be too late, like a, like a thief coming in the night. So that's our text. Let's go to the notes. Let's fill in some blanks. Let's learn about a few things. So what was Sardis like? Number one, Sardis was an older, well-established, and wealthy city. Before the Romans showed up, Sardis was the capital of their area. So they were the hub of everything. That's where all the, the rich people were. That, they, and they had that kind of life. It was, it was an easy life. They had learned to get along. They had been at it a long time. So it was, it was, a, it was a fairly nice place to live. Their main and dominant false god was Artemis. And so there was a major temple to Artemis there. It was, it was so well built and so large that there actually is remains still today that you can go see the temple of Artemis. And in, in, in that setting, that all created a city full of paganism and idolatry. So almost everyone there had some kind of relationship with, with Artemis. And, and, and they were controlled by the Romans and they were influenced by wealth, and it was just a place where, a lot like America, where I may not need God because everything's going great. And this, this other system seems to be working, so let's not get too excited. And so the believers there had a, had, a, had a real challenge convincing others that they needed Jesus, and they needed to step away from the other gods. So number two, Jesus again starts the message reflecting on their deeds. The Sardis deeds were not commendable. They didn't get a positive list. They were instead the problem. Their deeds were the problem. So he goes right to their deeds. And so A, all their deeds are summed up with the phrase, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. So he says, I know your deeds. Your deeds make everyone think you're alive, spiritually alive, but I know that you're dead. That was probably a little bit of a shock, because they also probably thought they were spiritually alive. So what does that mean? Well, number one, they were religious, but not saved. Okay, they talked well, they served well, they looked good, but they weren't saved. And, and, and just let your mind wander a little bit. Who out there in the world today puts on a good show, puts on a good talk, serves the, 
the well. Hey, we're going to do mission work here. We're going to do an orphanage here. We're going to feed the hungry here. Disaster relief here. Send in your money. Make a donation. We'll make sure that people are taken care of. They do good things. They look good. They talk good. They're religious. But when you look at their teachings and you look at their doctrine, you have to ask the question, aren't these guys even saved? Think of Kenneth Copeland. He's on TV. That's why I picked him. He, he, they, you know, they do some good things. Assuming the money they collect goes to where they say it's going, they, they're involved in some positive things. But then you listen to him preach, and he throws some stuff out there that's just crazy when you compare it to Scripture. And, and I don't want to go into all that. You, you've probably heard enough. If not, spend 10, 15 minutes on YouTube. You'll, you'll see it. Joyce Myers is another one. She's a harder one because she says a lot of positive things. She says a lot of things that make sense. But she also says a lot of things that don't align with Scripture. And that's, remember, we go back to, we've got to test everything with Scripture. She's much more believable, much more enjoyable than, than Kenneth Copeland, but still wrong on so many fronts. Benny Hinn's another one. Great show. He can bring in millions. He travels the world and millions of people show up to go to his healing services. And, and he makes a living at it. And this is what happens. He puts on a good show. And he claims to be a Christian. But his, his doctrines are wrong. And so we have this even today. We have religious people that aren't saved. Another example straight from Scripture would be the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were the experts in the law. Them and the Sadducees, they, they had the dominant philosophies. They didn't agree with each other, but they were the dominant ones. They were the leaders of the people. They, they taught the religion. They, they guarded the rules. They, they demanded compliance. They spoke for God. But when the Messiah showed up, they couldn't see him. And they fought against him. They weren't saved people. They were religious, but not saved and that's what we're dealing with the Sardis, a, a bunch of religious people who have not become saved. B, they looked faithful, dedicated, caring, serving, and, and Christian. They looked Christian. Some were fake, and some were deceived. There were some among them who knew good and well they weren't Christians, but they saw an opportunity, and they ran with the opportunity, and they got what they could out of it. They were fake. And there were others that had heard the message and thought this must be true and believed what they were being told, and they were deceived. So among the fake believers and the deceived believers in Ephesus, we find out they're really not believers. And so, the, or, excuse me, in Sardis. So the, the majority of people in this church were unsaved religious people, and Jesus says, hey, wake up. Number three in your notes, Jesus' call was for them to wake up. And strengthen what remains. Like, pay attention. So this church, and, and you, go, you go to these churches, you go, you know, think of another church, think of someone else you've heard of or someone else you know. Their churches are full. And they're huge. And they have all the resources and all the funds. And you walk in the door and you think, man, God must be blessing this place. This must be incredible. And Jesus writes a letter to this kind of church and he says, wake up. You've missed the boat. You've been sleeping through the important parts. Wake up. 
Strengthen what remains, whatever truth is still there, whatever people are still there that, that truly believe, wake up. Strengthen what remains. Because if you don't, I, I'm going to take it all away. Verse or number four is the warning. Jesus' warning was that before they know it, it will be too late. Like a thief. That's really what he's saying is before you know it, it's going to be too late. How will it be too late? Well, they'll die, and then it's too late. They'll buy in so much, become so brainwashed that it's too late. They'll get so self-confident, so distracted that it's too late. And then one day they'll be standing before their maker, expecting a pat on the back. I, I did great things in your name. I, I served the, the poor. I, I healed. I prophesied. I did all these things in your name. And Jesus will say, depart from me. I didn't know you. All of a sudden, it'll be too late. And that's what he says to them. That's, that's a pretty harsh letter to receive as a church, right? Number five, Jesus promised, there is a promise to those who are true believers. Jesus promised to the true believers in Sardis was their assurance of salvation and eternal reward. He says, you will walk with me. You will be dressed in white. You will be holy and righteous and pure. And, and I'm not going to blot your name out of the book because of other people and their sin, even if it's your church's sin. I made a promise to you. You accepted your forgiveness. It's yours. So there's a, a promise. Hey, in your notes, just to fill those in, you will walk with Jesus and be dressed like Jesus. The, the way you dressed was part of your identity back then. It actually told people who you were. It says, I'm going to walk with Jesus, and I'm going to be dressed like Jesus. I'm going to be part of God's family. So the warning to the church of 2023, like all the church, and Heritage Bible Church specifically, here's the warning. Number one, unworthy churches and false converts can look very real on the outside, while at the same time be very dead on the inside. They can look very real on the outside and be very dead on the inside, and we have to know this. We have to know that looks can be deceiving. That we can, we can dial it up all we want, and, and an unbeliever can present themselves as a believer. And a church that's not following God can present itself as a church by saying, God said this, God said that, the Bible says this, the Bible said that, when in fact God didn't say it and the Bible didn't say it. So we have to be aware, we have to be on guard, and we go back to comparing whatever we hear with Scripture. How does it align with Scripture? Does it say it or does it not say it? The Scripture is our final authority. So we have to be aware that looks can be deceiving. Number two, even true believers can get trapped inside a dead or dying church. Now, now we need to be aware of this for a number of reasons. One, we might need to rescue somebody. We may need to go to someone and say, listen, I know you're a true believer, I see the fruit of the Spirit in your life. I, I've heard your testimony. I, I see God active in your life, but you're not in a group of believers. This is not a group of believers. I've heard many stories of Christians moving to a new town and, and joining the Mormon church because that was the first people that came and talked to them. And being there for a couple years, even 10 years or so, before they figured out, wow, these guys aren't Christians. They're not actually teaching the gospel. We, we, can, we can make a mistake and we can get caught in something. We can be a part of a church 
that's, that's gone the wrong way. Leadership has changed. Beliefs have changed. And, and we've just kind of watching it happen but not knowing what to do. Believers can't get caught. They might need to be rescued. And, and you might need to know that as a believer, you might need to do something. You might need to make a change. Number three, no matter how many good deeds you do, even as part of a church, you will not be welcomed into heaven without having a relationship with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Matthew 7, 21 to 23, I want to read that real quick. Twenty-one to twenty-three says, "No one ever, not not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven." Many will say to me on that day, "Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in the name in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles?" Then I will tell them plainly, "I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers." This is Jesus speaking, and he. He, he says this is going to happen. And, and we can't be fooled into thinking that going to church makes me a Christian. And we can't be fooled into thinking that my parents and grandparents being Christians makes me a Christian. We can't be fooled into saying, well, my spouse is a Christian, so I am too. Or I'm an American, so I'm a Christian. Or I was baptized when I was a baby, so that makes me a Christian. Or, or anything else. It's a relationship. At some point in time, a relationship begins. You might all of a sudden discover you're in a relationship, but even that relationship had a beginning. And, and this kind of relationship, this relationship with God, depends wholly on the receiving of forgiveness, the, the accepting the gift of salvation. So Jesus' command to finish what you started applies to anybody who's going through the motions or even seeking or wanting to be saved, but hasn't finished the process. Hasn't said, you know, God, I am a sinner, and I, I do deserve hell. That's the punishment you've assigned to my sin. I do deserve that, but I, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe that that it's a gift, and if I reach out and, and take it and accept it, it's mine. And then my sins are forgiven, and I am in a relationship with you. And when I die, I'll go to heaven. I accept that gift. Please forgive my sins. But that, that kind of a beginning has to take place. It can, it can look very different in different people's lives. And, and the words can be different, but that relationship must begin. And so number four, the warning, the last warning, you can build for yourself a stairway to heaven. Good deeds, good attendance, charity, kindness, loving. You can build a stairway to heaven. But the stairway you build to get to heaven, when you get to the top and you get to the landing, all you're going to see are the gates of hell. Your stairway will not get you to heaven. The only way to get to heaven is through Christ. It doesn't matter what you do. And, and these are the warnings here. This was an entire church filled, the majority 
with people that weren't saved. So here's our application. Number one. Number one and two go together, but number one. Church leaders, I'm talking about, talking about pastors, elders, and deacons, church leaders should never be chosen for business success, for personality appeal, popularity, charisma, or age, or wealth, or even the willingness to be the bad guy. And how did I come up with this list? Personal experience. I came up with this list because I can look back and I remember people that were put into leadership because they owned a successful business. And because they had a winning personality, because they were young and we need young blood, or they were old and we need more wisdom, or they were wealthy, or they were influencers, or even on occasion the guy that says, you know what, I don't mind being the bad guy. Put me on the board. I'll tell people how it is. And, and, and someone said, yeah, that's a great thing. And they become board members, and it doesn't work because they're probably not qualified and their motives are wrong. Those, those are not reasons. Those can be bonuses, and, and those can make someone uh, valuable, but that's not qualification. So number two, pastors, elders, and deacons should only be chosen through the realization that they are qualified under the conditions of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. You can read those. It says an elder must, a deacon must, and it goes to the list. And it says this is the kind of person you choose. And if you only have one in your church, then you start with one. If you have 10 or 15, then you have the blessing of choices. But we don't, we don't have a special number, or we need four deacons, so we're going to have to find Two more warm bodies. No, we don't do that. We serve with the two we have or the one we have. And I think what we see here is a leadership issue. The leaders in this church did not call for repentance. They simply looked at the numbers, maybe the finances. They looked at, wow, they're suffering in other places, but we're not. Let's keep it that way. And they didn't call for repentance. They didn't call to finish what had been started. Number three, application. We must be clear and unashamed of what the gospel is and is not. What is the gospel not? The gospel is not uh, a ticket to membership. The gospel is not uh, a passport to an easy life. The gospel is not uh, a means by which to never get sick uh, never lose your money, never lose your job, never lose a relationship. Those, those things aren't it. What the gospel is, A, the gospel is God's rescue plan for his created children who have sinned. Remember, sin requires us to go to hell. It's, it's the God-assigned punishment for sin. He says, I am holy, sin is unholy. If, if we're going to spend eternity together, you have to be sinless. If you have sinned, your eternity is as far away from me as possible. That's hell because I'll be in heaven. So the penalty of sin is hell. You can read about that in Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23. And he says, but I have a gift. Like He says, you're all sinners, and that requires you to spend eternity in hell, but I have a gift. And Jesus Christ came on his own accord, be the good news, the gospel, is that Jesus suffered and died voluntarily as a sinless human sacrifice 
so that you and I could have an opportunity for our sins to be forgiven. Jesus Christ said, I will go and die in your place. I will take your sin, and I will take the full punishment for your sin, and it will be piled upon me, but I can handle it because I'm God. I'm going to take all the penalty of sin. It's going to fall on me. I'm actually going to die physically as a human being on a cross so that you who are also human can, can live. And, and being God, I'm going to raise from the dead again. And because I have the power to raise myself from the dead, you can believe I also have the power to raise you, raise you from the dead. He says, so your problem of sin can be solved by this gift. And a gift is never yours until you take it. It's never yours until you open it. See, the gospel is God's promise that he will indeed respond to everyone who calls out for forgiveness and salvation, adopting them into his family, bringing them into his eternal kingdom, and rescuing them from an eternal hell. That is good news. That's the gospel. Here's the best part. You know, my kids come to me with a great idea, and, and they're sure that it is the best idea ever. And they come to me and they say, Dad, I want to do this, or Dad, I need this, and you need to get it for me. Dad, this is going to be great. Well, Dad has maybe a slightly different look at it. And Dad thinks that might not be the best thing for you. Matter of fact, that might be the worst thing for you. And they know that I might think that. So they come with this great idea, and they ask the question, Dad, can I? And then I have to say yes or no. Well, that's not how God approaches us. God approaches us and he says, hey, I've got the best thing for you. I've already done it. I've already paid the price. I'm holding it out to you. All you have to do is accept it. And we accept it. He doesn't say, well, I'll think about it. It's an automatic yes. When we say to God, I will accept your forgiveness, God says, it is done automatically. Not, there's a trial period, or a probationary period, or I'm going to see how busy I am today. Automatically done. Automatically forgiven. Automatically adopted. Automatically have eternity in heaven. And it can never be taken away. Your name will never be blotted out. You will be walking in a white robe with Jesus, in a white robe. You will be holy. You will be righteous. And that's what we look forward to. That's where we get our strength for today. But the application of, of us reading this is never to be like the church in Sardis and just let people come, but not present them with the gospel. So what we're going to do is I'm going to ask the question, are you here today? And, and have you been on a religious path but not yet entered into a relationship. Religion is not a bad thing, but it is a starting place. You must move to the relationship. Religion will make you feel good. The relationship will actually make you good, righteous in God's sight. And then our life begins to reflect God, who God has made us to be. So I'm just going to lead us in a prayer. And I'm hoping and praying, and I prayed before you got here, and a lot of us have been praying that if you're here today and you realize, you know, I don't have a relationship. I've been trying. I've been trying to do the right thing, 
I've been trying to get God's attention. I've been trying to earn a little bit. I've been building my staircase, and bummer, I found out it doesn't get me anywhere I want to go. I want the relationship. I'm going to lead you in a prayer that will help you begin that relationship. And I say help you because it all depends on what's in your heart. If you truly are saying to God the things I'm going to lead you in, then you'll be saved at the end of the prayer. If you're trying to impress somebody or you're just saying it to see if there's any magic in the words, then you won't be any more saved when we're done than you were when you started. It's by faith. God, I believe you said this, and I believe you will do this, and, and I'm in. I accept your gift. So I'm going to pray, and I'll, I'll, I'll lead you, and you can follow. You say what I say. You don't say it to me. You say it to God. Say it out loud or silently, because God can hear a silent prayer. You say it to God if this is what's on your heart. Jesus, I need a Savior. I am a sinner, and I understand I deserve hell. I believe in Jesus. I believe he died on the cross, and I believe he rose from the dead. I believe he paid the penalty for my sin. And I believe you are offering me forgiveness. God, I accept that gift. I accept your forgiveness. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for starting a relationship with me. Help me to know what that means. Help me to live the kind of life you want me to live. Teach me your ways. I now belong to you. In Jesus' name, amen.